turn to Matthew chapter 16. We'll be continuing in Matthew in just a few moments. And, you know, we're getting to this point where Jesus is, uh, you know, making this uh, major touchstone, milestone interaction with his disciples, asking them, who do people say that he is? And it reminds me of classes that you may have been in classes like that, where the teacher is trying to pull something out of the students. You know, they're, they, they don't want to just feed them every piece of information. You want to make sure that they're following, that they understand what you're saying. And here we have this situation where Jesus asks a pointed question. And I, I've seen this over and over again in classes that I've been in. But even, you know, in context of work, you know, there's been situations where I'm trying to explain a complicated subject maybe to somebody who is new and uh, new to the workplace, and they're shaking their head up and down, and I'm thinking to myself, are you writing this down? Because <laughs> this is complicated, and it takes time to learn these things. Sometimes it takes a little bit of uh, repetition, maybe some, some doing, and then maybe some correction, right, some review, feedback, uh, to actually learn something well. Well, Jesus interacted with his disciples, you know, in this life-on-life relationship over the course of a few years, many months. And uh, as he interacted with them, they uh, learned firsthand. They, they very likely heard him say the same things over and over again, uh, repeating teachings, repeating uh, metaphors and ideas and parables. And uh, you would expect that eventually they would start to begin to understand, to, to understand what uh, Jesus was trying to teach them. And we've seen that in Matthew's gospel as well, right? We see this, this repetition of events, of, of healings and other stories. And the, there's, you know, some folks who maybe are healed and they do seem to understand that uh, Jesus is the Messiah. And then there's others who don't. And you have the disciples who seem to be beginning to understand. And then you have Pharisees who are pushing back against that. They don't want to even go there. They, they want to make sure that the idea of Jesus being associated with God is, you know, kept far away. And so the disciples do fumble a bit up until this point, right, showing that maybe they don't completely understand everything. And then we come to this week's passage, this turning point where Peter makes a statement concerning Jesus, and then Jesus ties that statement to the mission of the church. So this is a a big milestone, and it's worth our time this week as we look at it. Now, this week, I'm going to read from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Normally, we read from the ESV, and I'll I'll point out a few things later uh, when we get to those in the passage. But just uh, turning to Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13... When Jesus came to the regions of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. All right, so two main thoughts in this passage. The first one is this confession, and then the second one is he will build his church. And before we get into that, we have to understand the context of where this is placed in Matthew's gospel. And so there is this uh, you know, top-level summary of Matthew's gospel in five parts. And the, the idea is that these sections of the gospel are uh, centered or oriented around uh, each of five different sermons that Jesus gives or discourses. And so you have the opening of the gospel uh, with the, you know, the, the narrative of birth, and then you have the closing with the Easter week, you know, the death and resurrection of Christ. And in the middle, you have these five sections. So the first section is the Sermon on the Mount, right? The reality of a kingdom people and what a kingdom people should look like. And Jesus goes into detail in the Sermon on the Mount on that topic. And the second section is the Sermon on Evangelism. What is the message of the kingdom? And the third section are the kingdom parables, right? The nature of the kingdom, trying to understand what is it. And now we're coming into this fourth section, the Sermon on the Church, how the kingdom people will live as his church until he returns. And then the fifth section is the Olivet Discourse, which means what the coming kingdom is going to look like when that kingdom is established. Right? So you have these, these five sections. So we're, we're moving on from this um, kingdom parables and into this Sermon on the Church here. And we've been through some of these concepts of, of what this kingdom people will look like and what the gospel message looks like and what it's like to carry that message And so this fourth section, all about how they're going to live together while he's away, Jesus is just focusing them on the kingdom. And you see Matthew's gospel has this kingdom theme to it that's carried throughout. And, you know, where we are now is how we are going to live as his church, right? So this theme on the church, it hits its peak in chapter 18. We'll get there in in several weeks. But here we are in chapter 16, and the groundwork for it's being laid even here, right? Because of this connection in the, in the passage between the identity of Jesus and he will establish his church, right? So we're already moving on to this topic of the church. And so Jesus is tying their understanding of who he is to his purpose for his church. And this tie between those ideas, you know, it's not just some academic exercise. It's actually really important for our understanding of chapter 16, and how we understand this whole next section, and in particular, this week's passage. So let's dive in to this week's passage, the first half of the section, the identity of Jesus. Who is he? When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so there's been a lot of groundwork laid in Matthew so far, and you may be getting tired of me bringing this up every time I preach, but you probably already know what I'm going to say. Right? There's this pattern that we saw in earlier chapters of who is Jesus, he is the Messiah, and worship him. 
Right? So over and over again, we run into these situations where Matthew places Jesus' identity right in front of us. And through these accounts in the gospel, he's trying to bring that to mind and make us ask that question as the reader. Who is Jesus? And then Matthew answers it for us. He is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of man. And we've seen some of those healed who seems to understand this. And we've seen the crowds hypothesize, could this be the Messiah? And then we've seen the pushback from the Pharisees. And now we come to this week, and this theme reaches a climax when Jesus forces the question with his disciples. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And their reply, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Right. So they answered his question, who do people say? And Jesus is not asking what others say. He wants his disciples to confess who he is. Right? That he is the Christ. And so we see in verse 16, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. And so who was the Messiah to the first century Jew? He was the son of David, the one who would restore to Israel their place of blessing and promise. And we get a hint of this down in verses 21 through 23. Jesus points out that he would suffer, and Peter responds, Oh no, Lord, that will never happen to you. So there is both this first century expectation, which may have been a little bit of what Peter had in mind, and there's also this Old Testament uh, mission of the Messiah that... The Messiah is the one who would bring the the kingdom of God. And that certainly is what Jesus has in mind. And the question is, what what does this kingdom look like, right? This is the role of the Messiah that Matthew has been trying to show us throughout his gospel, right? The son of the living God, Peter says. Again, the Messiah is the son of David, but Peter goes further to declare him the son of the living God. And we see this title, Son of God, given to the Messiah in the Old Testament, you know, multiple places. You know, you have references like Psalm 2 that say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. But this title shows that the Messiah is more than a national or military leader. The Messiah comes with this mission, which is the establishment of God's kingdom. And we see that emphasis on the kingdom, right, in Matthew's gospel. So we can step back for a moment and Can we just be amazed at this truth that God sent his son, right? That, that amazement, that, that's the whole, the whole point of what these folks in, in this text are experiencing is that the son of God who came to redeem people for himself has come, right? And this is the living God who will bring about what he promises, In other words, this is the God who's active in the world, the God whose purpose will be fulfilled, and this is the God that we worship. And so Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ fits perfectly with these themes from Matthew. You know, who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. Worship him. And now we come to this point where Jesus' disciples have seen this message, and they're ready to confess Jesus as the Messiah. So in verse 16, Peter answered, 
you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In verse 17, Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Okay. So who is Jesus? He is the Christ. And then, so the identity of Christ, Jesus is the Christ. And then we have Peter's confession here in verse 17. So we, we see that Peter makes a confession, that Peter is blessed for having made this confession, and that the Father reveals the content of that confession. So what's being confessed, right? Jesus is the Messiah, is the Son of God, and the authority and position that's associated with those offices. And we've seen over and over again in the last several chapters of Matthew this revealing of the identity of Jesus. And as we read this text, we get to see this revealed in ways that seem hidden to the people in the text at the time. And we get to sit in this role of observer as the reader, right? And now, having seen this story and unfold in story after story, we see this major event, right? Jesus' disciples are beginning to understand and to, to make this confession that Jesus is the Messiah. And they understand the content of the gospel message. It's focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And now his disciples are beginning to recognize that. And Jesus points that out. Right? So this is a, a major turning point here. It's a major event. Why? Because the confession and the content of that confession are important. Right? Peter sees who Jesus is right, in the authority and position tied to that office and that the kingdom is associated with that mission. And if Jesus is king, then there is a kingdom. Right? And that kingdom is bound up with the title of Messiah. All right, so we, we also saw that it was revealed by the Father. So this is not something that Peter just came up with. It's not something that... Uh, you know, he just, you know, through his cleverness figured out. It says that it's something that is revealed. So part of the kingdom parables is this idea of revealing something hidden. Right? People do not understand, but God reveals his plan to his people. And so this plan of God is not something that comes from the effort of the flesh or blood, but rather it's ordained by the Father. And so this confession is an assent to the truth of the gospel message. Right? The object of the confession is Christ, and the confessors are his people. And the one who reveals it is the Father. And now Jesus uses this as a teachable moment, turning to this topic of establishing his church. And one flows from the other. And, you, know, you might say, well, you know, we, we've got sort of the gospel confession here, and then all of a sudden he's switching topics to the church. Right? How did he switch topics so quickly? But really, one just flows into the other. So, this is not just a left turn in the text, right? The, the confession is a foundation for the church. So, let's look at that now. He will build his church, starting in verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. So, the key elements of this passage. 
There's some metaphors here, or at least uh, some imagery or terminology. The church, the gates, the rock, and the keys. So we're going to talk about each of those. The church, the gates, the rock, and the keys. So let's start with church. He says, I will build my church. So Jesus has promised to build his church, and the confession that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah is a foundation for the church, but the, the confession itself is like a rock, right? A foundation. And Jesus uses this play on words interacting with Peter's name, right? Yet we see God's work in it and revealed by the Father. And Jesus says, I will build my church. So Jesus lays out this mission plan. In, in the last chapter, uh, you know, a few sermons back, Ben pointed out how the mission would include the Gentiles based on the, the two feedings of thousands of people. And other passages have pointed us to salvation in Christ, the centrality of Christ and salvation leading up to this passage. And where does that take us in this text? Well, Jesus takes us to the church. So we might ask a question, how does this fit with this broader kingdom plan? We've been talking about the kingdom. Matthew's gospel is all about the kingdom. Jesus takes us to the church. So Matthew has been focusing on this Messiah, and now we're hearing this message about an assembly or a community, right? The terminology is different here, and I would say that it's intentional, that Jesus could have picked kingdom, right, to emphasize kingdom, but instead he uses this this terminology of an assembly or a community of people, So in the broad context of Matthew, thinking back to those five major sections, Jesus is preparing his disciples to live without him until he returns as a community. And then there will be a future time when he comes to set up his kingdom in its fullness. And he set before them this vision of a kingdom people in the Sermon on the Mount and the message of the kingdom in the Sermon on Evangelism and described that kingdom in the kingdom parables And now we're turning to see this preparation for the church living as his people awaiting his return. And some would say as an embassy of the kingdom. So it's not that the church is cut off or separated from the kingdom, but it's not perfectly identical to the kingdom itself. It's an embassy of the kingdom. And so the gospel message and that confession that Jesus is the Christ are foundational Right? And he will build his church. And the point is that the gospel does not just sit there outside the context of the church. Right? Rather, the church is central to fulfilling this plan. It's, it's this outpost of, of the kingdom in the world until he returns. And so the gospel is central to that mission. And Jesus is central to that gospel message. And the confession of those who believe is central to the propagation of that message. So we have gospel, confession, and church. We can't just leave it with gospel. We can't just leave it with gospel and confession. Right? This is how he builds his church. The church is founded upon that confession. And one leads into the other. Gospel, confession, and church. And they are tied to one another. Jesus will build his church. And by, we have to look at these other metaphors too. Right? He changes metaphors. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. So the gate is really just an image of warring kingdoms the kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of heaven. So what is a gate? Well, there is an ancient Near East 
uh, sort of understanding of a gate being the, the seat of power or authority of a local town or community, walled city. And you know the, the gates are built strong to protect the city. So there, some folks will focus on the defensive aspect of the gate. Other folks will focus on the administrative aspect of the gate. You know, the idea of, you know, Boaz, he goes to the gate to talk to the, the elders about, you know, purchasing land. So you, it's kind of like the, the county courthouse in a way, uh, or it may be a um, uh, kind of like a regional capital, right? The, the, the center of the administration of the government is out of the gate. Um, but they're built strong. And it's a place where government business is done. So the warring between these two gates between the underworld of death and the church and Christ's kingdom, we see this theme explored in more detail later, right? We just went through Revelation, right? I think it's detailed in great detail in Revelation. And we see it later in Mark's gospel as well. But Jesus's point is that the kingdom of hell will not prevail against his kingdom or its embassy, the church. So we still have to ask, what does this mean? Right. Some will say that it's about armies of heaven storming the gates of hell. In other words, essentially it's about evangelism. That's one interpretation. Another would say that this is that hell and death will not overtake the church. And I would lean towards that interpretation, that hell and death will not overcome the church. I think that fits with understanding from, from Revelation. So having discussed the church and the gates, we have to ask what this relationship is between the church and the kingdom. Right. Those who belong to Christ, members of his church, are kingdom citizens, and yet they themselves long to see the kingdom come in its fullness. What we have now is temporary, and they belong to Christ, yet now there's more to come that they're looking forward to. And so this promise that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church ties us to this promise of the coming kingdom that the coming kingdom will be established in fullness and Christ will have victory. And the, the death that so many fear is not to be feared by the church. It will not overpower those who are within the gates of the kingdom. All right, so they belong to Christ within the gates, yet they know that there, there's more to come. And... And they look forward to that promise, right? The foundation promises are strong, right? So we, we see this metaphor shift to a rock. And that raises a whole lot of questions, right? He says, you are Peter. And then he says, upon this rock. But the question is, what's he referring to when he says this rock? Right? Some point out that Jesus compares Someone who hears his word and builds uh, upon a rock, right, is who, somebody who listens to his word and arranges their life in accordance with his word is like building on a rock. Some make that, that parallel because that's from Matthew's gospel back in chapter 7. And there's at least an analogy to a firm foundation there. And elsewhere we see lots of references to Jesus being a cornerstone or a foundation, And so there's at least some analogy there to a rock as being a foundation. But we have to ask, what is this rock? Is it Peter? You're a Peter. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. Is it the Pope? Right? The, 
Catholic theology pulls the idea of the Pope out of this to say Peter was the first Pope? Uh, is it the apostles? Is there an apostolic confession that, that gives some authority to the apostles? Is it the church? The church carries this confession. It, it, is, it is the church. It's the foundation for the church. Or is it the confession itself? Is this rock Peter's confession? All right, so let's look at each of those. Is it Peter? All right, there, there is a play on Peter's name here. Right, It's a, a form of Greek word for rock, Petra. So even to say that this is referring to Peter does not demand the Catholic interpretation of the Pope, though. It loads all the weight of, of a system of church into this verse. But there is a similar interpretation that would say Peter is blessed, right? It says he's blessed to make this confession, that he is the first to make the confession. So there's some preeminence in Peter. Some would emphasize the first among equals or, or maybe first among the 12 for Peter from that. Okay, what about the apostles, right? They, they were present, and um, some folks will emphasize their participation in that confession uh, in what was given to Peter. And what about the church? Well, I don't think it makes much sense to say the church is the foundation for the church, so I think we could throw that one out. But uh, Jesus does move from Peter to discussing the church here. And the question can be asked, you know, what is meant by church, right? Earlier I said it, it means assembly or community, and um, there's this collection of people who profess Christ, right? So th that does seem to be where we're headed in the, in the passage, yet the meaning uh, will be refined over the next few chapters in Matthew. Okay, what about the confession, right? Peter's the first to make this confession. It is foundational, but that foundation which is laid is Christ, right? The confession, the content of the confession is confession of Christ, so specifically, Jesus is the Christ. So some confuse the honor of being the first to confess that Peter had, right, with Peter having some preeminent authority, ecclesiastical authority in the church. And so the message is centered upon the confessing of Jesus as the Christ and the building of the church. And Peter's position as the first is important, but it's important because of the content of his action, right? It's his faith that is on display and professed that Jesus is pointing out. And that is what the church will be built upon. Right? He believes that Jesus is the Christ. Right? That's the whole point of Matthew's gospel. And this fits with other New Testament texts, saying Jesus is the cornerstone foundation and talking about our common confession that we hold. It's funny, I was, we're in Sunday school, we're just reading some passages related to prayer, and I'm like, okay, there's confession, there's confession, right? This, this common confession that we hold as a church. Chrysostom, when citing this passage, upon the rock I will build my church, says that on, that is on the faith of his confession. So that was Chrysostom's view, that it was the faith of Peter's confession is the rock. And notice the language here. Jesus shifts from you are Peter to this rock. I mean, he could have said, you're Peter, and on you I will build my church. But he's using a play on words. He says, on this rock. So there is a change in the subject. The rock is the confession that Jesus is the Christ. Peter was the first to make that confession. There is a blessing 
uh, a premise that Peter has and the first to make the confession, but the confession itself is what's important and carries us through the rest of the passage and on, I would say, on through the next couple chapters of Matthew. Okay. So, putting... Um, you know, we, we know that the apostles will make this confession and putting chapter 16 and 18 together, we're, we would see the rock in this way, right? Peter and his confession is a foundation and it makes more sense, right? That it's uh, Peter's confession that makes that foundation. And it's not an authority vested in Peter. Rather, it is Peter making the confession that will be a foundation for building the church and others join in that confession, Right. What connects Peter, the apostles, and the church is their common confession that Jesus is the Christ. And that is what the church is built upon, that common confession. And so they're not two separate thoughts. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. Right. That's the confession that Peter makes, and it's the foundation of the church. So we see that, Peter, uh, that Jesus is not just you know, taking this odd left turn in the passage, changing subjects. Right, one just follows from the other. The first half of the passage is tied to the second half. All those who come to Christ must follow in this confession that Jesus is the Christ. And you'll find places where people you know, refer to the apostolic confession, sometimes in terms of the Apostles' Creed, but just in general, this confession of Jesus as the Christ. And that's what we join in. You know, um, Romans 10, 8 and 9, you know, Paul talking about the, the proclamation of the gospel and having faith. He says, this message is near you in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Gospel, confession, and church, right? John 17 Jesus says, I, not, I ask not only for these, but also for all those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So we have the gospel message. It brings faith and a common confession among his people, and that is what establishes the church. All right. So another metaphor, the keys. So this is interesting because some would point out the common metaphor between gates and keys, right? You, know, you got to have keys to the gate. Uh, but the, the, there is an interesting shift here in the metaphor. Uh, you enter gates, and the keys, as they're expounded, is actually talks about binding and loosing. So it's talking about some authority there, right? So it's not just entering the gates or letting people into the gates. It's, there's, there's an authority associated with binding and loosing. So, the Catholic view says that, you know, this is proof that Peter's the first pope. Right? You see this passing on of authority, and uh, that continues pope to pope. And you get this cultural reference to St. Peter and the pearly gates. Right? The idea that Peter has authority over the keys which determine whether you get into heaven. But there's a major problem with that. Matthew 18 will not allow for it. And so Matthew 18 is all about the church. And if you look at Matthew 18, verses 18 through 20, 
Jesus gives instructions to his disciples on how to deal with someone who sins against another and is to be brought before the church in certain situations. And notice the language is identical to Matthew 16. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two or three are agree on earth about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. Right? The keys are this binding and loosing. And so this instruction in Matthew 18 is that under certain circumstances, a sin which brings into question somebody's testimony is to be brought before the church. And there's nothing in this chapter to indicate that it's to be brought before Peter alone. But notice something else, right? The language here matches the language from Matthew 16, almost word for word, or it is word for word, right? Matthew 16, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Jesus knew that Peter was not perfect, Jesus is not talking about some sort of pontifical ecclesiastical authority. No, the keys of the kingdom are given to the church in Matthew 18. So this idea of binding and loosing raises the question of causality. Which comes first? What we bind versus what's bound in heaven. And the church making a judgment that determines somebody's fate. Or are they just recognizing what has been established in heaven? Right, so th- this is an area where, if you notice, in the ESV, it's in a footnote, but in the CSB, it's in the text itself. It says, um, "Will ha- shall have been loosed. And so there, there is this interesting construction here, um, without getting too much into the grammar, right? There is some debate among commentators, but recognizing the work of God in Others fits with the grammar and with other sections of scripture. It also ties to this idea of recognizing this common confession among believers in the validity of that profession, of an individual profession of faith, whether it's a valid profession. And the Holy Spirit works in somebody's heart, and God is the one who saves. It's revealed by the Father. And the church in prayer and dependence upon the Lord recognizes what has been done by the Lord. But if this is true, then this has major implications for how we do church and how we operate as a church, right? These phrases make the church a steward of the decrees of God and not the initiator of them. And so Jesus wants the visible church to be founded upon the confession that Jesus is the Christ and its members are to have a valid profession of faith and our unity is to be found in that common confession, And we are to hold to that confession in our assembly. And this is important to understanding the authority within the church and the role of the local believer within the assembly. It's one example of how the message of Christ is to remain central to our life together. Because we hold the integrity of the gospel message as a church, as we hold this common confession together. God is the ultimate actor, but he has chosen to use the church to bring about the proclamation of the gospel. And the church is entrusted with the proclamation of the kingdom message. It's entrusted with maintaining the purity of that message.
So, putting all this together, the rock is the common confession that is proclaimed by the church. You can add a little more Peter into that statement, right? Saying that it's, it's the confession that Peter first made, that it's, you know, Peter's confession is a foundation for our common confession, right? Jesus is the Christ, is the content of that confession, right? The apostolic message contains the gospel centered on Christ. Peter was blessed to have made that confession, but this confession is central to who we are as believers and together as a church, right? Christ himself is the foundation we see elsewhere, and that is why our confession of Christ is so important, right? Our personal confession is a participation in that common confession. It's the rock on which the church is built, right? It's our participation in Christ. And so there is no church apart from that confession. A church that, that does not hold the common confession with Christ ceases to be his church. So, know that he will build his church. Right? It's God's chosen means to proclaim the gospel and to represent his kingdom until he returns. And so it's, it's a kingdom people who have placed their faith in Christ. It's an assembly. It's a community. They carry a message revealed by the Father, guided by the Spirit, with Christ as the head. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Right? There is a war between kingdoms, and this statement tells us that, number one, the church is this embassy for Christ's kingdom, and number two, that God will not allow Satan to prevail against it. Right? The church is given the keys, meaning that God has chosen to work through his church to bring about his kingdom plan, and the church recognizes when others hold to that common confession. Right? The church recognizes what has been realized in heaven and by the work of the Spirit. And the implication for us is that the local church should be comprised of genuine believers, and we should maintain that confession as his people. And so question for you is, have you joined in that confession? Can you join Peter in confessing that Jesus is the Christ? Will you place your faith in Christ? Will you publicly confess that Jesus is the promised Messiah? Or do you confess something else? If not with your lips, then with your actions. When you look at your life, does your life line up with that confession? Do you desire, do your affections reveal a different motivation in your life that's inconsistent with that confession that you claim? And as you reflect on this study that we're doing in Matthew over many months, see that Matthew's intent is to reveal to you that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the one who came to redeem a people and to restore relationship with the Father and to put right what was lost through sin, through our sin. And may it be our prayer as a church and our desire to see others profess faith in him and be united to his people, his church, and to join us in this common confession in proclaiming the message of the gospel.
good news. And may that message not just sit idle, but may it be united together with his people and among his people that we find unity in purpose and joy in being a part of his church. Christ will build his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for having provided us with the hope of the gospel and that is not passive, it's not just an outline to be understood, but it's to be united with faith and confessed. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that want to proclaim the gospel to others, that we would be motivated by your love for us and by the mission of the kingdom that you have set before us as your people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust that you will build your church. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.